Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, my guest today is Dan Egan. Uh, he's the author of a book I'm, I'm looking at, uh, The Devil's Element, Phosphorus in a World Out of Balance. He's also a best-selling author of The Life and Death of the Great Lakes. So we're going to talk about his new book and the role of phosphorus in the world and how it creates toxic algae blooms and other problems, yet solves other problems and helps in other ways. Kind of a, uh, a paradox, I guess. But Dan, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, tell me a bit about your background and uh, what made you into a writer, and then I'd like to ask you about this book in particular. Sure. Yeah, I'm from Wisconsin. I was born here, grew up here, and I uh, went to college over in Michigan, studied history, which qualified me to do nothing but load up a car and drive out west, where I found a job at a weekly newspaper in Ketchum, Idaho, which is right next door to Sun Valley. So it was a nice place. Huh to live and to ski and to learn how to be a reporter. And so that's that's what I did. And I spent a couple years there and a few years in an, at another paper in Idaho and then several more years at the Salt Lake Tribune. I, you know, I didn't have any kind of journalism background when I started all that, but doing it is something of a crash course. And so I just kept doing it and ended up back in Wisconsin at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in 2002 and uh, started like almost a 20-year career there working as their Great Lakes reporter. And so that that was my beat, just kind of the environment of the Great Lakes, which is the largest freshwater system in the world. So that's huh. a brief back. What did you, um, were you out on the Great Lakes a lot? Were you always going around the shoreline and talking to people? And like, where yeah. did you go in your work? Yeah, well, you know, where are you located? Uh, Austin, Texas. I'm okay. from New York. So. Yeah, oh, okay. Because, yeah, I mean, the lakes are... It's a good question. How do you cover them? Are you out on them all the time? Because they're hard to get out on to any significant degree just because they're so big, unpredictable, wild, and dangerous. So, you know, a lot of the work I did was was just talking to ecologists or fishermen or whatnot, you know, at their homes or at their offices. But I did go out on the lake a fair amount of lakes a fair amount of times, and I still do. But you need a big boat, and you need somebody who knows what they're doing. <laughs> I don't, I don't have any either. So yeah, it's not like I'm a mariner out there plying the seas and chatting up the fellow nautical people. It's it's really. Well, just a, I was just going to ask you though, being around the Great Lakes and reporting on them, you must have gotten a sense of them that was greater than people that will just go there on a weekend and oh, maybe yeah. go swimming. So that's what I was going to ask you. Is I don't know what did you? We'll get onto the book very shortly, but any interesting insights from? studying and being in and around the Great Lakes so long? Well, just to give you an idea of what people think of the lakes, a lot, a lot of people are baffled when they come to Milwaukee and think that they're looking out at something more than just a lake. As a matter of fact, there's a story here. Some years back, they were doing American Idol on an art museum right down on Milwaukee's lakefront. And I think it was Jennifer Lopez was here. And she made some reference to the beautiful ocean behind her. And so that's a good way of describing how big these things are. I'm looking at Lake Michigan while we're talking right now. 
from an apartment in downtown Milwaukee. And it's 80 miles across to Muskegon, Michigan. You can't come close to seeing that front across. It's endless. Gassed. So that's really cool. Okay. So your new book is about phosphorus, though, and that takes you beyond the Great Lakes, I would say. And so how did yeah. you make this leap from the lakes to there? So I, I wrote this other book called Death and Life for the Great Lakes that came out in 2017. And it was really kind of an ecological history of the lakes, kind of like compilation of 20 years of the work I had done at the newspaper. And one of the chapters dealt with toxic algae blooms on Lake Erie and specifically retells this. I was in Toledo, Ohio in 2014 when they were suffering a real nasty algae bloom and it ended up knocking out the water supply for like a half a million people for several days because toxins from the algae got into the waterworks. And it wasn't a matter of like, oh, let's have a boil order and we'll make everything safe to drink and you know things will be online soon enough. If you boil that water, you would just concentrate the toxin and it's, you know, it's can be deadly. It's killed people. And if you boil the water and you let it settle, you know, the, the solid components or the algae component, there still was no good to drink like by boiling it oh. or killing yeah, well, no. So there wasn't even really technically algae in the water. It was the uh, it was the toxin created. The microcystis is the algae. Microcystin, colorless, odorless, is the toxin. And no, you couldn't. It wouldn't just settle out. It was just free floating. It was invisible, tasteless, odorless. Yeah, yeah. So that and it wasn't alive, so you couldn't kill it either, right? No, no. It's it's like a it's like a poison made in a factory. You know, it's made by nature. So. So that kind of opened up my eyes to the dangers of this. You know, you think algae, you know, whatever. It's it's like being worried about grass growing or something. But there are certain types of, it's actually not even technically algae. It's called a cyanobacteria. And it's like a photosynthesizing bacteria. But uh, there's a lot of it in a lot of places. And that's what happened. What happened when I was in Toledo was I just started going down this rabbit hole, looking into the history of this algae, its relationship with uh, agriculture fertilizer, and so when I finished the Great Lakes book and it had been out for a year or two, the publisher asked if I was interested in doing another project. And I suggested uh, phosphorus. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, he didn't bite right away. He was like a book about phosphorus. And I said, well, let me write you a proposal. And so I did. And yeah, that launched me on like a three or four year odyssey. So the book isn't just about toxic algae, even though that is on the cover. And it probably is the most important way people interact. No, probably the second most important way people interact with phosphorus. The most important way is they depend on it for their food. About 50% of the food grown in the world today is dependent on rock-based phosphorus that is mined and crushed up, spread on well, I know um, phosphorus is NPK, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. So yeah. there's the P, yeah. phosphorus it, is critical. It's the P, so yeah. How is it mined and turned into fertilizer? Okay, so yeah, the P is more crucial. Well, they're all, all three are crucial, but nitrogen, we get it out of the air. Potassium, there's vast deposits around the globe. And phosphorus, there are limited deposits, and it's basically sedimentary rocks, which are just kind of the remains of all sorts of all manner of sea life raining on the ocean floor and accreting over eons and becoming rock. And then through sea level change or seismic forces, that rock deposit gets heaved ashore and we mine it and we crush it and mix it with nitrogen and potassium and make our food grow. Problem, it's worked great for the last hundred years. It's why we've gone from what, like a billion people to eight billion and on our way to 10 billion. It's, it's because we figured out 
what these rocks could do when we've exploited them to magnificent and sometimes disastrous effect. So the problem with it is it doesn't stop making things grow when it washes off the landscape and too often too much fertilizer is put down and it ends up in water and it creates these toxic algae. Well, if, um, if nitrogen is maybe the limiting element of the three elements in, in fertilizer, why isn't it used carefully? That just the right amount. Phosphorus. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Phosphorus. Um, is it is it just dumped in in excess amounts with no thought, or is oh, it well, carefully you know, meted out when it's applied to a field? It depends on who you ask, right? You know, if you ask somebody who's worried about the ecological health of Lake Erie, they'll say that it's wantonly squandered on on croplands. Farmers will say that they gotten a lot better about applying it. But yeah, I mean, for decades we didn't really start using this stuff till like 1910 or so. It has been relatively cheap, and so farmers were often counseled by agriculture experts from the universities, the lot of great universities, to not scrimp on it. You know, if a little's good, a lot's better, especially if the rains come and wash a lot of it off before the crops get a chance to grow. So it was used, you know, that we've gotten a lot better at it, but, you know, the, the problem phosphorus poses water isn't restricted to the chemical fertilizer that's applied on fields. It's also driven largely by manure, which is rich in phosphorus. Because here's the thing about phosphorus. It never goes away. It just gets recycled over and over and over. You think of like a forest. Trees grow, you know, die, decay, rot. That opens up the door for a new generation. Or, you know, you want to think about it in more modern terms, the traditional farm where like, you know, cows graze, eat the grass, poop that grows more grass, cows eat it. We figured out how to turn this kind of trickle of phosphorus through the natural world into a gusher. And it's, it's been great for, for humanity, but it poses a problem for ecology, which is at some point going to not be great. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. So... Did you identify the producers of it? Did you identify, the, you know, again, the source of sinks? Like, what did you do to figure out how phosphorus travels around the world? Well, you know, I, I did a lot of agriculture history research, and I, I did some traveling in Europe. And, you know, the English were great pioneers of fertilizer because they're an island nation. And in the 1800s, with the Little Ice Age, famine was ever a threat. And so they were always trying to be creative with their limited crop-growing lands to maximize yields. And so they would through trial and error, throw stuff on a field. And, you know, it was obvious early on that manure, uh, animal manure, including humans, was was a, a real good fertilizer. But they were also using things like cloth and blood, hair and bone chips. Bone chips were a really prized uh, material, like in the early 1800s. They, they'd grind them up and spread them on crops. And if the crops, if the soil had the right acidity, it could basically pull the phosphorus out of that material and put it into a up or a crop of wheat or whatever they were trying to grow. But there was only so many bones to go around. 
in the early 1800s. So the British got desperate. They actually went over to Waterloo several years after the battle in 1815, and they mined the field, the, the battlefield, for all the bones of the fallen soldiers. And they built special mills to grind them up and spread them on crops across the UK. But that oh, was the really? Yeah, yeah. This is what I know. This is why when I told this editor that I was going to write a book about phosphorus, he was like, yeah, I don't know. And I said, just give me a chance here. So I was telling him about Waterloo and, and those bones and battlefield bones across Western Europe played out soon enough. So then in the 1840s, British and soon thereafter, other European nations and America followed suit not long after that, got into the guano trade. And guano, I always thought of as just that, but it's it's bird poop as well. And there are these islands off the south coast of South America, off of Peru specifically, that are just mountains. Yeah, they're all made of poop. Yeah, you see, you know about these. Yeah, so so those were like primary and premier fertilizer source for agriculture fertilizer source from the 1840s till say the uh, the end of the 19th century, and and that's when around that time we really figured out that certain rare, relatively rare rock deposits are just lousy with this stuff, and. The biggest deposit. Oh, one great thing is yeah. there's, a, there's an interesting complimentary book to yours by Thomas Hagen called The Alchemy of Air. And he talks about some of the origins of fertilizer. He doesn't split it out like you do, mm-hmm. you know, into phosphorus and the other elements, but he does talk about fertilizer and how the Nazis, uh, or sorry, the Haber Bosch process first that was able to help create additional components to fertilizer, nitric acid, how it was used in World War II, et cetera. So it sounds like you've taken a very different tact, but. Someone's yeah, no, yeah, yeah, and I, and I do I do touch on on the process that was developed in 1909, and up to that point, it was kind of a dueling limiting factors. You know, we had the potassium, but nitrogen was scarce. The nitrate deposits they were primarily down in South America, and we were getting it from manure and stuff as well. But there wasn't it wasn't an unlimited supply. And then you know, air is 70 or 80 percent nitrogen, and we figured out how to pull it out of the air. That really put the pressure on us to find more phosphorus because the nitrogen cap had been lifted. So we ended up mining these rocks. And the biggest deposit we have in the United States is in Florida. And we're on pace to play out those reserves in three or four decades, maybe sooner, at which point we'll become dependent on other countries for our nutritional security, which is arguably more serious than energy security because there's workarounds to fossil-based fuels. I mean, they're not perfect, but they're your back's against the wall. There are things you can do to to make a car move and to heat a home. But there is no substitute period for phosphorus. It's in every living cell on the planet, maybe universe. And we, for years and years and millions of years, I'm talking, relied on just this natural recycling of the phosphorus that we got when Earth was born, cycling through the environment. But then, you know, it was accruing in different reserves, whether it was bones or bird poop or rocks. And now that we've isolated it and realized what it can do, we've gone after those deposits with wrecks abandoned. And you know, I mentioned like in a matter of decades, the U.S. will probably be dependent on other countries. And 70% of the world's remaining phosphorus, phosphate rock reserves specifically are in Morocco and Western Sahara, which is... Oh, I thought uh, China had big reserves of phosphorus too. China has produced a lot of phosphorus fertilizer and they do have, I don't have the pie chart in front of me, but I think that their deposits account for maybe five, 10% of the world's, not even that actually. I mean, the U.S. has, I think, less than 1%. The big, the big mother loans. 
is anyone studying how to recover phosphorus, like to concentrate it back up again for commercial use? Is that a complete yeah. nightmare or is there a way to do it? Well, it depends. I mean, the most practical things to go after right now are waste streams. And so I'm talking livestock and also humans. But it's been estimated that if we were to um, figure out how to recycle 100% of phosphorus from animal waste, that would meet about 50% of the world's needs, which will extend our phosphorus rock deposits by 50%. So, I mean, that's something that we've really got to start looking at because too often right now, manure is treated as just, you know, utter waste. It gets spread as a fertilizer, of course, but oftentimes that stuff is spread whether the crop needs it or not because the farmer needs to get rid of the poop. They make it every day, just like they make milk and uh, it's got to go somewhere. And too often it's just spread on the landscape and then it washes into water. So if we were able to, you know, the bigger the farms get, the more easy this becomes to to start treating the, the manure and pulling out the chemical nutrients that are in there, they'd be every bit as pure as anything coming in a fertilizer factory. And moving those, if you pelletize them, it's much easier than moving around trucks sloshing manure. There's also- so are, there any, are there any large companies that are looking at phosphorus recovery? That's their business? Yeah. You know, in the book, I go to Germany to Hamburg, Germany, which is where phosphorus, elemental phosphorus was first discovered in the 1600s. This guy was trying to, so when I talk about phosphorus as a fertilizer, it's actually phosphates, which is, you know, a molecule of phosphorus and, and oxygen atoms, but phosphorus in its elemental form doesn't exist in nature. It has to be basically uh, conjured or distilled. And so this alchemist in the 1600s in Hamburg, Germany, was trying to isolate the philosopher's stone, you know, that mythical substance that can turn base metals into precious metals like gold and silver. I mean, the thought at the time was that all metals are in, in this evolutionary state and they're slowly progressing, like lead at some point is going to become gold. And so they thought if they could find the material substance that was triggering this process, they could feed it along and get rich. And so this guy was convinced he can get it from the human waste stream and the philosopher's stone. What he got was elemental phosphorus, which is like highly toxic and highly explosive. It's used today as a weapon of war. It's not supposed to be dropped on people. It's supposed to be used to illuminate the night sky or to uh, hide troops behind smoke screens. But if it get, if it's dropped on people, it, it just burns right through them. It looks like a firework. You know, when you see those globules streaming down from the sky, trailed by a bunch of smoke, that's what that's what a phosphorus bomb looks like. And we weaponized it some years after it was first discovered. And coincidence would have it that the Allies then went and burned Hamburg, phosphorus's hometown, to the ground. It's further, in 1943, as further coincidence would have it, Hamburg has got this state-of-the-art wastewater treatment plant that's just coming online right now that's pulling basically all the phosphorus out of the human waste stream coming into that plant because there's a German law that kicks in in 2029 that all the major uh, sewage treatment plants have to pull all the phosphorus out of their incoming stream. And that's to do two things, to protect water quality in Germany and to give Germany uh, some semblance of self-sufficiency when it comes to chemical fertilizer because there are no real okay. big-time deposits in, in Europe. So how, much, waste... how much are they recovering? Like, What's the theoretical amount that they can recapture? I think I think the number I'm going from memory here, but I think if, if all of Germany and all of its major cities installs these systems, and the first one just just up and running now, it could supply somewhere around 20 percent of the EU's uh, phosphorus chemical fertilizer 
demand. Not of all the of Germany or the entire EU. I'm sorry, Germany. So and then scale that up to the EU. Basically, they're saying that there's 20 percent of our needs are in our waste stream, so substantially more in livestock, just because of the numbers of livestock. So yeah, I mean, and and then there's other things you can do by just like preventing erosion on on croplands and just being much more meticulous and precise in how you apply the the pellets that do come from the fertilizer factories. I mean, it's it's estimated that like 80 percent of the rock phosphorus rock mined gets lost through just the production stream, just inefficiencies, poorly applied final product. It's it's like only 20 percent of the phosphorus you pull out of the ground that's Oh, very interesting. Anything that didn't make it into the book that you thought would be uh, was, was very curious that you learned or interesting? Yeah, I mean, so this toxic algae, the book's really broken into a couple parts. It's first the race for phosphorus. Once we figured out how precious or essential it is to grow our food, just the legs we went to get it, and it didn't stop with the, you know the Guano Islands or these rock deposits in Florida. We we basically destroyed a number of phosphorus rock islands that had people living on on the Pacific during the middle of the 20th century. I wanted to go out to New Zealand and they actually fertilized their countryside just to get the grass to green out so they can raise all those lambs and grow trees. They, they call it top dressing. It's like crop dusting, but they're basically fertilizing their countryside. And, you know, it's this, there's uh, trace materials in this chemical fertilizer that you don't want to be putting on the land for year after year after year after year, including cadmium, uranium. But beyond that, the algae that it grows, it's it's a liver toxin, and there's emerging evidence that it's a neurotoxin. And so there's this this protein that the uh, algae creates called BMAA, which has been associated with neurodegenerative diseases in certain populations. And one of those populations is in Guam. And it was determined that they had these high... And this is all kind of... I report on some of this in the book and some of it, I just left it alone because, you know, there's, there's correlation, but not causation, but there's, there's a lot of it. People who are exposed to this protein BMAA in Guam, they were exposed to it by eating fruit bats. But it turns out that this, this toxic blue green algae is also thick with it. And they're finding a high occurrences of the protein in dead sea mammals down in Florida. And it's, there's also been some studies that there's a doctor up at Dartmouth has done some studies on ALS clusters around blue-green algae-infested lakes, and, and they've got huge spikes that are hard to explain, and algae is one of the logical explanations at this point. So well, how does uh, nature, quick question, how does nature cycle and recycle phosphorus? Have you, have you looked at that very much? I know, you know, well, well, playing again is dramatically changing. Yeah, but I, mean, I guess go back to the forest and just, you know, it's death and decay opens the door to the next generation. And so our first, I was talking about rock, sedimentary rock deposits of phosphorus. That's where it's really been concentrated. But when Earth was first created, the, the only phosphorus we had was in igneous rock. It was in the stuff that, you know, solidified after lava just congealed. And it had trace amounts of phosphorus that were just kind of leached through weathering and erosion into the living world. And then that stuff would get taken up and it would just cycle over and over and over again. Now, of course... Once you get to the aquatic environment, the ocean deep is pretty much a desert. And so that's where these these sedimentary rock formations came from. It was just dead sea life, dead algae raining down on, on the ocean floor and becoming rock. So we basically did two things. We turned a trickle into a gusher by harnessing, you know, these 
deposits of, of phosphorus-rich sedimentary rock. And we also broke this circle of life in a very real way. Rather than, you know, much of the phosphorus being recycled through the life and death dance, we turn that circle into a line. And it, it runs from a mine to a farm field to algae-infested waters. So the book doesn't really provide a prescription for what to do. But I think the first step is for people to realize that, A, we're, we're running out of this stuff, and, and B, there's a much more efficient way to use it in a manner that will prevent these toxic algae blooms from wreaking havoc. And it's not just in the Great Lakes, it's all across the globe. I mean, just for your own kicks at some point, Google toxic blue-green algae. It's a phenomenon and it's getting worse with a warming planet, increased carbon in the atmosphere, and our just increased use of this stuff. It's just piling up year after year. Any comments on the book from different people that it opened their eyes in one way or another, or perhaps they made you realize something that we needed to be looked at in a different way or added to the book? Like now that it's out there, what are you experiencing in terms of the feedback? Oh, I, I think it's positive. I mean, people are kind of disturbed. And, you know, one of the reactions is, why didn't why didn't they know about this? And, you know, it's kind of a complex uh, picture that I'm painting or sketching by connecting all these dots. But once they're connected and it comes into relief, it's, it's pretty obvious that we are on an unsustainable path in a lot of ways. You know, there's these planetary boundaries that the Earth is, you know, going to be bumping up against, or the humans on Earth are going to be bumping up against soon enough. And this is one of them. You know, I guess the best thing that I've learned about this book is it's short. It's 240 pages and it's character driven because I'm not writing for scientists. I'm not a scientist. It's, it's for lay people. And hopefully, you know, it, it builds circulates on the back of this Great Lakes book, which has been regionally, the book has, has made its way around quite a bit. And uh, I think that this- well, If you don't want to worry about uh, having a career for the next like 200 years, go through every element in the periodic table. And, uh... Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I know. <laughs> make for a hell of a bookshelf. Well, speaking of which, what's, um, what are your thoughts for your next book? I know you're probably tired just just finish this one and want to yeah, relax. This one oh. this just came out. Yeah, I'm thinking about maybe doing something on ice, just a cultural history of ice, how it really shaped where we settled in terms of food preservation and, and culture. And again, we kind of corrupted the natural process of our, our natural relationship with ice through climate control. Mm. So I don't know. It's just an idea. I, I live on the Great Lakes and ice really drives water levels. When we get too much of it, we get real high water levels in the summer, and that's been menacing to cities like Chicago. And when we don't get enough of it, the lakes evaporate, and that poses its own threats to water supplies because the drinking water intakes need to be at a certain depth. Um, also, uh, jeopardizes navigation and freighter tra freight traffic is big business on the Great. Oh, yeah. Well, tell me um, a bit more about the uh, toxic algae. I, mean, I, did, I kind of moved you on from that subject, but it's vital. And the cover of your book shows a beautiful, although horrific, you know, toxic algae bloom. So tell me a bit about that. What's what's phosphorus's role in that? Just like um, just like growing a stalk of corn, it grows blue-green algae. It's the limiting factor. So a lake like Lake Erie, it's relatively warm. It's always been very productive. They call it a eutrophic lake, just kind of algae rich but this this stuff is like throwing gas on a fire it just it causes the populations to explode and it gets a little more complicated in certain lakes that have been infested with have you ever heard of zebra mussels or quagga mussels there, yeah, there, you know, pipes and everything. Yep. yeah yeah well they they filter like if you look at lake michigan today it, it's like caribbean clear you can see down depending on the time of year 
almost to 100 feet. It's just crazy. And in, in its natural state, you'd only see down maybe four or five or six feet. But the mussels, they're filter feeders and they filter everything out of the water. And so they really decimated, literally brought fish populations in some places down to 10% of what they were before the mussels arrived in the 1980s. But the thing about these mussels is they don't eat toxic algae. You can see these videos on YouTube when they're in an aquarium and they're sucking everything out of the water column except for certain flecks. They spit those right back out and that's the toxic algae. So they're basically selecting for it. The, the toxic algae has very little competition, so it causes you know a huge explosion in the blooms. And that's what's on the cover of that book. It looks like a fire. It looks like a green fire. And that's that's the surface of Lake Erie. That's a, there's a little research boat off to the right there. And these things can span like 2,000 square miles. <laughs> yeah. When, how do they go away? What happens to them? What, what happens when the, the um, algae blooms first appear? How long do they last and how do they go away? They go away in the fall with diminishing sunlight and increasing storms. Like rough water churn, churns up the slicks and they end up falling to the bottom of the lake and secreting there. You know, someday maybe in the hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years, people will be mining the bottom of Lake Erie for uh, phosphate rock because of all this this algae. Yeah, they just, you know, it's like it's like foliage. It's like leaves on trees. They they grow in the summer and they fall off and decay in the winter. If they come back, though, next, well, they, they, it sounds like they come back every year, I guess, in spring or certainly yeah. summer. Do they grow over time? You know, does the phosphorus stay resident? And the next time the bloom's even bigger and bigger and bigger? Or how do they tend to progress over years? Oh, that's, I don't know the answer to that. But I, I mean, the concern is Lake Erie, as I said, is still the shallowest Great Lake, but it's still pretty deep. So it's hard for um, turbulence on the surface to churn up the sediments on the bottom of the lake in a manner that will foster even more algae growth because now the algae doesn't just have the stuff coming off the landscape. It has the stuff in the sediment. But like down in Florida, Lake Okeechobee, which is, you know, a huge lake, it's like 30 miles across and it's pretty round. So it's 30 miles in each direction. That's like nine or 10 feet deep. And so that that place is just has horrible algae slicks. And the big problem for Florida is that that lake is also largely artificial in that it's surrounded by a man-made berm, a dike, and uh, when the water level gets too high, the federal government, the Army Corps, has to release water from it so it doesn't crest its embankment and flood people. I mean, in the 1920s, thousands of people died in two separate floods when, when the early Lake Okeechobee Dyke burst. So down in Florida, they'll take all this water, like this goop. It's as thick as like guacamole. I mean, I saw armadillo walking across a patch of this blue-green algae one time. It's just crazy. But anyway, they have to get rid of that water and that algae that's in it. So they open up navigation locks and send it to the coasts, to Fort Myers area on the Gulf Coast and to Stewart, Florida area on the Atlantic Coast, where you know it closes beaches. It's it's working in conjunction with the red tide, which is a different phenomenon, but is also influenced by excess nutrients coming off the landscape. Very interesting. Hmm. So what was the release date of your book and where can people find it? And we'll... Restate that, the title. Yeah, it was March 7th. It's called The Devil's Element, Phosphorus in a World Out of Balance. It's published by W.W. Norton, and it's available on Amazon. It should be available in local bookshops. I've, I've seen it in airport bookshops in the last couple of months. So it's it's out there. Excellent. Well, thank you for uh, looking into this and into the Great Lakes and all the other books that you're going to make and uh, the books you have done. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. So I enjoyed those were good questions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.